The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. We have four more weeks in the book of Daniel, and I hope, as a result of this series, we've all gained a fresh appreciation of the book of Daniel and for God's word. I was uh, corresponding via email with one of our global partners, and I was asking him, you know, in some of the three self-churches, the government churches in China, whether the pastors are able to preach from Revelation or from Daniel. And he said, oftentimes, no, because they speak of the second coming. And yet we have the privilege of hearing the whole counsel of God. So would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, we want to see you more clearly this morning. And as a result of that seeing, we want to savor your truth. We want to be satisfied in Christ. And so do that work this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's no secret to many of us that it's been a difficult year the last year or so. And during some of those difficulties at the church over that last year, there were heightened tensions, disagreement from among some of the elders, frustrated congregants, lots of misunderstandings, and even sudden resignations. And during this season, there was one elder that would often say the same couple of things at one of our elder meetings. He would say something like this. There is a spiritual battle taking place here. There's some sort of spirit at work. This is not human. I don't know what it is, but we must pray. And so we prayed and God was gracious during that past year. I wonder if any of us have ever experienced something similar to that, where you're thinking, whatever I'm seeing or feeling isn't normal. This feels spiritual. I need to fast and pray and seek God's help. Or whatever this is, it is beyond my control, beyond my wisdom. It seems unusual, like there's some sort of spiritual realm that I need to tap into. If you've ever experienced that, I wonder if any of us have experienced that, just by show of hands, a number of us. If you're in that camp, you're in good company. Look with me at verse 2 in our passage this morning. Daniel says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So, so what we see is Daniel is troubled and fasting. Something is clearly wrong. He's lost his appetite. He's not partaking in any of the good food that he normally would. And he's not even anointing his body with lotion or oil because of this overwhelming grief. So something significant is taking place in our passage this morning. And what Daniel 10 does is reveal some stunning realities for us this morning. So before we jump in, let me just give us the broader context of Daniel 10 all the way to 12. The context for Daniel 10 all the way to 12 is Daniel's fourth and final vision. And all three chapters comprise this fourth and final vision. 
And chapter 10 in particular is sort of like a prelude to the rest of the vision. The vision really begins in chapter 11, starting in verse 2, goes all the way to 12, verse 4. And yet chapter 10 gives us this little glimpse or window into some glorious realities for us this morning. Now, to understand Daniel 10, we need to look at why Daniel is mourning. So, so look with me at verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So what's taking place in verse 1 is the summary of everything that's going to come. Basically, in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, Daniel gets a word revealed, a vision, and it was pertaining a great conflict or war, if you will, and he understood it. Now, look at the timestamp on that. It's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And if you were here last week, you'll remember what happened in the first year of the rule of Cyrus king of Persia. It was that he released the Israelites who were in exile to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple. This is in Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. And so the question is, two years later, maybe three years later, how is that rebuilding work going? How do you think it's going? Not good. It's not going well. Ezra records in Ezra 3.12, after they laid the foundation for the temple, and remember, about 70 years has passed. So most of the original generation has died off. They don't even know what the temple looks like. But there were some remaining priests and Levites, and it says in chapter 3, verse 12 of Ezra, that they wept. They wept. The reason for that, it's like, If you go home today and you get home and all you see is the foundation, your house has burned down. That's how they felt in that moment. Devastated. The former glory of the temple is no more. It it says actually in Ezra 4.4 that the enemies of God's people surrounded them and discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid To build. And even, it says in Ezra 4 24, that the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. So Daniel prays in Daniel 9, God, would you deliver? Confessing on behalf of his people. And God comes and he says, Yes, I'm going to restore you. You're going to go back and I'm going to even see it all the way to the end. And now, three years later, Daniel looks and he hears, The work is stopped. The temple is not rebuilt. What's going on? And and so I think this is the reason that Daniel has gotten this news and he's mourning and fasting. So what I want to do this morning is walk through this passage by asking two main questions for us. What is happening in this prelude to the vision that's going to come? What's happening? And then the second part is, what is the significance of what we see revealed in this passage? So what's happening? Let's look at verses 2 through 9 of chapter 10. What we see here is this angelic encounter. So we, we notice that Daniel is 
On the 24th day of the month, this is verse 4, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen. And then he goes on to describe this man. So what takes place here is then Daniel then falls down on his face. He's trembling in fear. You can see that in verse 7. And then the His strength has left him in verse 8, and then Daniel falls into a trance, ultimately. You see that in verse 9. I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So so the primary question for us is, who is this man that causes Daniel to fear so greatly? Now, notice the characteristics of this man in verses 5 and 6. He's clothed in linen, a belt of fine gold, euphaz, refers to a place that minded, that mined fine gold. Uh, Number three, a body like beryl. It could be jasper or topaz, basically some sort of gemstone. I think he's trying to convey that his body was gleaming. Four, his face glowed like lightning. His eyes were on fire. Arms and legs were like burnished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude, like the roar of the seas, if you will. So clearly we know that this is not a normal man. This is an unusual person. So who is it? I think there are four options, and I believe the fourth, but let me give each of them to you. Some scholars think this is the angel Gabriel that showed up in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Gabriel appeared to Daniel earlier, so maybe it's the same angel. But in Daniel 8 or 9, Daniel's not overcome with fear. You know, the angel kind of sidles up to him like a normal guy in some way. So Daniel is not afraid, and so many think perhaps it's not Gabriel. The second option is that this is Jesus. So many scholars think that this is the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus. And the reason for this is because of how he's described. John, borrowing language from Daniel in Revelation chapter 1, is describing Jesus and he says, he's clothed in a robe with a golden sash, hair was white, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze, and a voice like the roar of many waters. This is Revelation 1 verses 12 to 16. And so the one described in Revelation is clearly Jesus. But there's one main problem with this view, and it shows up in verse 13. Look at verse 13. This is this one speaking, and he says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, we'll get into who the prince of the kingdom of Persia is, who that is, in just a moment. But here, if this is Jesus, he's being held up for 21 days by this prince of the kingdom of Persia. And yet we know that when Jesus shows up on the scene, demons fall before him. No one can withstand his power and authority. And so I think this is not speaking of Jesus. The, the third option that some scholars try to get around this is they think that who shows up in verses 2 through 9 is Jesus. And then the person that touches Daniel in verse 10, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, that that's a different person at that point. So there's a switch. So the person that's being delayed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia is perhaps a different angel. 
So that's one solution, but there just isn't any evidence that these are different people in this account. So I think the fourth and final option, which I think is the most likely, is that this is just an unnamed angelic messenger. So it is an angel, but he's sent to Daniel. We see that in verse 11. He said, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for I have been sent to you. So he's probably sent by God and he required Michael's help to fight against the other angelic forces like we saw in verse 13. So perhaps he's not as strong as Michael, maybe a little bit inferior, but not necessarily uh, Gabriel, but a different unnamed angelic messenger. Now, what would explain the fearsome and unusual appearance of this angel that causes Daniel to fall and tremble? I think it's this, that this is a warrior angel. Look with me at verse 20. In verse 20, this angel says, Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So there's this picture of he's come to fight. He got held up. And after he delivers the message, he's going to go back and fight. And so there's this picture of a warrior angel, perhaps. And I think this makes sense. In John's vision in Revelation, he actually describes the seven angels. So he's not describing Jesus there, but he's describing the seven angels in Revelation 15, 6. And he says they're clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. So there's this picture of this uniform that these angels are wearing. So the summary of what's taking place in this very beginning section, Daniel sees an angelic being, his friends run off and hide, and they, he falls down, he trembles as he sees the vision, and then he falls into a deep sleep. So this is not sort of your normal Sunday morning passage, is it? All right, now we're going to look at this angelic dialogue that takes place in verses 10 through 11, 1. And the summary of what takes place here is that Daniel is weak and afraid. He's trembling in fear. We see that in verses 10 and 11. And then in verse 15, it says Daniel was mute. He couldn't speak. And then in verse 16 and 17, it says that Daniel was in pain, that he was emptied of his strength, and that he had no breath within him. And each time the angel touches him, the angel touches him in verse 10, sets him up, touches his lips in verse 16 so that he could speak, and he strengthens him in verse 18. And then finally, Daniel has the strength to receive the vision, and the vision we'll see actually the next two weeks in chapters 11 and the beginning of 12. But interspersed into that dialogue where Daniel falls down, the angel helps him up. Daniel it can't speak, the angel helps him speak. Daniel is just trembling in fear, is a glimpse into the unseen realities in the spiritual realm. Look with me at verse 12. The angel speaks the following words. He says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So the angelic messenger tells Daniel, I heard you from day one. I was on my way, but I got delayed. 
So the question is, who's Michael, the chief of the princes or the chief princes, one of the chief princes, and then who is this prince of Persia? Well, Michael shows up again in Daniel 12, verse 1, and he's called the great prince. He's also described as an archangel in Jude, verse 9. And then he actually is recorded in Revelation 12, verse 7, as going to war with an army of God's angels against the dragon in Revelation. So who is Michael? He's likely one of the most powerful angels assigned to protect God's people. He comes to the rescue of this angelic messenger when he gets delayed. So who is then the prince of Persia? Well, the prince of Persia is probably not a man. It's not speaking of a man because it's doubtful that any human person could cause an angel to be delayed for 21 days. Anytime the Bible ever records a man seeing an angel, he falls down, he's trembling. This is not of this earth. So it's likely that this is an evil angel, that is, a demon. Now, some of you are wondering, where does the Bible talk about evil angels? Well, in 2 Peter 2.4 and in Jude verse 6, it speaks of angels that sinned and were cast down for end-time judgment. And until that end-time judgment, they serve Satan. So fallen angels are what we call demons. And this demon was probably assigned to Persia by Satan to enact wickedness and evil. What are we to make of this? Here are some key observations from this text. Angels are real. We don't talk a lot about angels, but angels are real. There are good and evil angels, which we call generally angels and demons, and angels can influence the affairs of humans. We see here that this prince of Persia inspires and influences the human government of Medo-Persia. And likewise, there's another one for Greece. So we know that angels can inspire and influence human governments, their leaders, and even be satanically inspired. And we get a little glimpse into the heavenly realm that there is a spiritual battle taking place. Most of us live down here. You know, I go to work. I come home from work, there's traffic, we get beautiful weather, we get six months of snow, whatever it is. We, we just live down here. And every once in a while, we kind of break in, we get a little bit of glimpse of there are spiritual battles taking place right now as we speak. God is on the move, but so are Satan and his demonic spirits of evil. And there is a whole other world taking place. And what Daniel reveals for us is that not only is there a very real spiritual battle being waged right now in the heavenly realm, but the good news is that God and his angels work on our behalf. They fight on our behalf. And so the whole sweep of the book of Daniel has been to show that God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, over fiery furnaces and lions, over visions, over kingdoms that rise and fall. And ultimately, God is even sovereign over the spiritual realm, over Satan and over his demonic workers. Daniel introduces all of these interesting concepts and ideas that aren't really explained a whole lot elsewhere in Scripture. 
For, for example, we're not told to pray to angels or to call upon angels. We're, we're not told to identify all the territorial demonic spirits. You know what I'm talking about. You know, oh, maybe there's a demon of this area and of this area. We're not told to chart out all the different types of angels. You know, if Gabriel's here and Michael's up here, who's in between and, you know, what rank are they? We're not told all of that. So I want to guard us this morning against seeing a demon under every rock, casting out demonic powers at every turn, or praying against demons of every location. I don't think that's the main thrust of this passage. But we know that demonic powers are real and active. We ought to pray against Satan's wicked schemes. We did that in the prayer room earlier this morning. And we ought to pray for God's deliverance, both through natural and supernatural means. And we know that unseen spiritual war rages. So what do we do with that? Well, why don't you turn with me to Ephesians 6. I think this is the place in the New Testament that speaks most clearly about the spiritual battle that is taking place. Verse 12, Ephesians six twelve says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we are not surprised that angels protect, protect and deliver and rescue God's people, but we're also not surprised when demons are off doing their work. And yet the main point of our passage is that God is sovereign even over the spiritual realm. One of the things Daniel 10 shows us is that God is exercising his providence, his his good control over all things, even over Satan, even over demonic powers, and even over persecution. In John 12, 31, Satan is sometimes called the ruler of this world, but it's God who establishes and tears down every king, every kingdom, and every ruler. None can stand against God's all-powerful hand. Even in the instance of Job, you guys remember Job? Satan comes to God and says, I want him. And God says, okay, but you cannot go an inch further. Not an inch more than what I allow. And we don't understand all of that, but we see very clearly that God is sovereign and in control even of Satan and his schemes. Or if you'll remember, Mark 5, Jesus goes into the area of the Gerasenes and there's the demoniac. He has the demons within him, which they call legion. And what happens? There's a showdown. Jesus shows up on the scene. The demoniac comes. And what happens? The demon falls down before Jesus and he says, have mercy on me. This is the power of our God. This is the power of the one that dwells within us. That even when demons see him, they, they, th- this man had power to rip off chains that he was bound with. He overpowered everyone else that came into his way. But as he saw Jesus in the distance, he fell on his face and he confessed him as the Christ and begged for mercy. This is the glory of our God. Now, in verse 20, the, de- the, the angel speaks again to Daniel. Look with, look with me at verse 20. He says, do you know why I've come to you? 
But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So this angel is saying, I helped Michael at one point to confirm and strengthen him. So what's going on here? This angel plans to go back to fight against the prince of Persia, which we mentioned earlier. So this suggests that evil and wicked kingdoms oftentimes are under the influence of evil and wicked spirits. And we can recognize this in our world, can't we? Even in our world, that there is this sense in which we should be able to kill babies from within the womb. 62 million since the inception of Roe versus Wade. That's just from the pit of hell. That's demonic. And there are people who are blind to those realities. It's just a clump of cells. And everyone knows it's not a clump of cells. That is a human life. But there's just darkness. And we need to pray to God to take the blinders off of people. Or just like racism. We would say the fact that someone else, if they have a different color of skin, is somehow less worthy, is somehow uh, less intelligent. We would say, no, the Bible tells us we're all descendants of Adam. We're all made in the image of God. Those lies come from the pit of hell. So as we think about the spiritual warfare that's taking place in our world, Ephesians 6 again informs us how to engage in the spiritual warfare. Verse 13 of Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the blessed breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication did you see what those verses were talking about We are to stand firm against Satan and his schemes, and he will fall back. We're not to retreat, and we're to wield the offensive weapons of God's word through prayer to engage in spiritual battle. And so I wonder how many of us each morning put on the full armor of God to engage in spiritual battle. So many of us think, you know, Bible reading is like brushing my teeth. You know, if I miss a day, it's really not the end of the world. You know, a little bit of tartar and plaque buildup. And yet this is telling us there is a spiritual battle that is raging Not in the background. It's in the foreground. We just don't see it most of the time. And when we wield God's word, that's our only offensive weapon. And we're to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of our identity in Christ so that we might engage in this battle. And so Bible reading and prayer is not a safe activity. It is engaging in the spiritual battle against the forces of evil. And every time we engage We're putting Satan and his workers on notice. 
in this precursor to the vision we see, Daniel's grief is great over the suffering of his people. And in following weeks, we'll see the vision as it's flushed out. But what I want to do is ask the question of why is this significant for us this morning? Why is this significant? Why does why is Daniel 10 included in the Bible? Why do we get this passage? I think it reveals the reality of spiritual warfare, which is important for us to be aware of. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, speaking of demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So he's essentially talking about we can fall off on either side of the ditch, right? We can just think demons don't exist. Stop being silly or or they exist. And I want to know everything there is to know about them and talk to them and everything else. And he says "Uh, that's falling off on either side. And what I want to do this morning is strike a biblical balance. The Bible clearly talks about spiritual warfare, but it doesn't talk a lot about it at times. And I think the Bible speaks of actually three different types of spiritual warfare that we need to be aware of. The first, or let me give you all three. There's the love of the world, there's indwelling sin, and then there's demonic power. And I think it's important that we have a category for all three. So James 4.4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. 1 John 2.15 says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So Christians need to fight against loving the wicked ways of the world. And that would be desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. So things like materialism and riches and fame and comfort and pleasure and ease. And so we are not to live for these things, but we're to resist these things, following Christ. So there is a spiritual battle that takes place there. The second type is the spiritual battle that takes place within each one of us, the battle against indwelling sin. Paul writes in Galatians 5 that we're not to to gratify the desires of the flesh that are opposed to the desires of the spirit. Things like sexual morality and idolatry and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and envy and drunkenness. And so we are to push back against the very things that our own temptations and hearts gravitate towards. So that's a spiritual battle that is taking place as well. The Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The third is the one that our passage has in view, which is against demonic powers of evil. And the reason I mentioned the first two is because I don't want us to find a devil under every evil deed. It could just be that you love the world. It could just be your own indwelling sin, and we need to fight against those as well. And we do need to engage in spiritual warfare against Satan and his evil army of demons. So how do we fight against them? Well, Ephesians 6 told us to put on the full armor of God. We wield the word of God. Uh, Another passage that helps me is James 4, verse 7. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Speaking of Satan, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So how do we resist the devil? The sentence right before says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
So, so the idea is the way that we resist the devil is we actually submit ourselves to a greater authority and power in living in submission to the authority and the kingship of Jesus. And then the sentence after says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So as we draw near to God in reading our Bibles and in praying and submitting ourselves to his authority and rule and reign, we are resisting the devil and the devil will then flee from us. So spiritual warfare is real, but we need to constantly remember 1 John 4, 4, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's speaking of God through his spirit dwells within us and that power, that authority, that rule and reign is greater than any foreign power, any of Satan's demonic powers. And so we have nothing to fear. So, so the main point of Daniel 10 this morning is this. That even though there are a multitude of unseen spiritual realities that we don't always see, God is gloriously working all of those things together by his sovereign hand, his providential hand for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. God is gloriously working all things together for good for us this morning. So, one of the things I think we need to see is that we have a great and glorious hope in Christ this morning. We have nothing to fear. The one in us is greater than the one out there. But Daniel is given for us so that we don't just go about our day on cruise control, forgetting that there is a very real spiritual battle that is being waged in our world, even right now. In the same way that the prince of Persia tried to stop this angel from going to Daniel to bring him encouragement, we know that Satan tried to stop Jesus by tempting him in the wilderness. Three temptations. Jesus withstood those temptations by quoting God's word. And then Satan, plan B, filled Judas, betrayed the very son of man, and thought he finally had his victory. Betrayed the son of man, crucified on a cross, died, and yet Jesus rose again. And Colossians 2.15 tells us it's at that very moment that Jesus Christ once and for all disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Satan might be a lion, but he's been neutered. And his, he's all bark, no bite at this point. God will return in the final judgment and give all authority to the Son of Man and establish his kingdom forever and ever. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus, we would invite you to consider whether you are on God's side or whether you are on the side of those who would oppose God, Satan and his demonic workers. The Bible tells us there are only two ways to live. Either you're on God's side, covered by his blood, died with him and raised with him, like we saw in the baptisms this morning, or you are serving Satan, unknowingly or knowingly. 
There are only two ways to live, and this is truly the only area where we do not want to end up on the wrong side of eternity. As for believers, I know that some of us are facing trials and challenges or suffering. And yet, I want us to see the glorious truth of this passage. God is working for your good. It may be an unseen reality. There may be a spiritual battle that is taking place, but God is working. You might be walking through things that you think, I I can't believe I'm going through this. Maybe you're three weeks in or three years in to to mourning. And you're thinking, when's the tide going to turn? Daniel was probably wondering, after three weeks, where is my God? And yet the answer had already gone out to him, but there was just other realities at work. And so know that we are the beloved of God. Jesus Christ himself has died for us so that we would be his beloved children. He does not call us servants, but he calls us friends. And so in the same way that this angel says to Daniel again and again, Oh, son of man, you're beloved. You're beloved. Don't ever doubt for a moment that you're loved by God. Even when you're mourning, even when you're fasting, even when you're full of grief, even when you're trembling, even when you're falling on your face, and maybe you're even mute, don't ever forget where your reality lies, that you are the beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what some of us need to hear this morning, that you are beloved of God despite your circumstances, despite your suffering, despite your challenges, despite your trials, you are beloved. And when we see the raging of the wicked, the scheming of Satan, the demonic powers at work in our world, we know that God's army will be victorious because the vision tells us the end has already been ordained. We know how the story ends, so you have nothing to fear. Martin Luther, in his classic hymn, writes this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I think I talked about this before, but what's that one little word? I hear some people saying, Jesus, and that's what I thought, and that's a good answer. And yet, Martin Luther says, it's liar. It's liar. When Satan brings his accusations and says, you're not loved by God, you're worthless. The cancer is because you have been disobedient. You should feel really bad about yourself. Because you're estranged from your kids, it's because God does not love you. You're still in your sins. When he brings accusation after accusation after accusation, what do you say? You're a liar. Jesus Christ is on my side. He's fighting my battle. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So when Satan brings accusation against you this week and says, you're not loved by God, 
He's forgotten about you. Look at all the problems around you. Look at how everything you touch just seems to fall apart. Look at your children. Look at your grandchildren. Look at all the hardships around. Look at culture. Look at how you're doing at your job. God doesn't love you. You go back to his word and you say, you're a liar and you're going to live in the pit of hell forever because God is on my side. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us a glimpse into glorious realities that we don't often think about, we don't often see. And even now, we pray that your spirit at work dwelling within us would cause faith to rise up so that we would sing in spirit and in truth, that we would have seen your glorious truth, that we would be satisfied in Christ and we would savor who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.